is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunbill, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome back to our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. Today I'm on a solo mission exploring television and Victorian adaptations. I will also be touching on radio because I feel like it's necessary and it's an important precursor to television. First, let's look at a timeline of television and radio. In 1884, Paul Nipkow patents the Nipkow disc at just 23 years old. He describes it as, quote, an electric telescope for the electronic reproduction of illuminating objects, end quote. This is a fundamental component of early mechanical televisions. In 1886, Heinrich Rudolf Hertz is able to prove the existence of electromagnetic waves. These radio waves become known as Hertzian waves. In 1894, Guglielmo Marconi begins work on a wireless telegraphy system using Hertzian waves. He secures the patent in 1896, though it wasn't ready for commercial use for a few years after this. In 1897, English physicist Sir Joseph John Thomson discovers the electron and proves that it is possible to deflect cathode rays. This is fundamental to the cathode ray tube, which are used in the old-fashioned televisions with a large box at the back. They are cathode ray tubes or CRT televisions. In 1900, Konstantin Persky first uses the term television. In 1906, German academic Max Diekmann successfully uses CRT to display images. He publishes his findings in Scientific American three years later. In 1911, Boris Rosing and Vladimir Zawalking create a system that is able to transmit still images over wire to a CRT. In 1914, the First World War breaks out. This is a catalyst for the development of radio, which is used in military communication on both sides. In 1920, Britain's first live public broadcast takes place from the Marconi factory in Chelmsford. In 1922, the British Broadcasting Company, or the BBC, is formed by a group of radio manufacturers, including Marconi. At this point, it's a private company, and John Ruth is appointed general manager. In 1923, the first issue of the Radio Times is published. In October 1925, John Logie Bairds demonstrates images in motion at Selfridges in London. In December of the same year, Kenjiro Takianagi also demonstrates images in motion at Hamamatsu Industrial High School in Japan. His is the first all-electronic television set. In 1927, the BBC is established by Royal Charter and becomes a public service corporation. Ruth, now Sir John Ruth, becomes the first Director General. He states that the corporation should aim to inform, educate, and entertain. In 1929, John Logie Baird experiments with television broadcasting. In 1936, the BBC television surface opens. It is the first broadcaster in the world to provide real, high definition, for the time, not by today's standard, TV. 
1967, the BBC's adaptation of John Galsworthy's Foresight Saga becomes the first television event. Sunday evenings are reserved for watching the 26 episode series. Some church services are even cancelled or moved around so that people are able to watch the series. In the same year, BBC Radio 4, the main vehicle for serial plays, is launched. And with that, let's jump in and look at televised adaptations of Victorian works. As I mentioned in the Round the World segment, Sir John Reith, the first Director General of the BBC, saw its purpose as being to inform, educate and entertain. One of the ways that he wanted to do this was by bringing culture to a mass audience, and this was done by broadcast both theatrical plays and adaptations of novels. Before television was widely available, these adaptations could be found on the radio, and these novels on the radio are often called serial plays. Richard Butt writes that, quote, it was entirely consistent with his, being Rice, philosophy that readings of scenes from classic literature, including Dickens, Austin, Scott and Trollope, featured in the earliest years of radio broadcasting. It did take some time for the classic serial play to emerge. They began to be broadcast across two nights in the 1930s, and they were later extended, generally running across 12 regular parts. And today, serial plays are still popular. BBC Radio 4 is one of the best places to find them in the UK. This is going to be a very British-centric episode, because obviously that is what I know about. BBC Radio 4, as I said, is one of the best places to find them in the UK. So they have a Book of the Week segment, which tends to focus on non-fiction texts, and also a regular Book at Bedtime segment. The Book at Bedtime segment features, quote, readings from modern classics, new works by leading authors, and literature from around the world. Past examples of the book at bedtime include Jane Austen's Persuasion, Honoré Balzac's Cousin Bet, and George Eliot's The Lifted Veil. Early TV adaptations followed the formulas developed for radio. Initially, they focused on the staging of scenes from novels. Full-length narratives could at this time be found in the broadcast of theatrical plays, which developed in the late 1930s. I want to just draw an important distinction here between televised plays and television plays. Plays that are streamed from a theatre, like the ones that you might see on BBC4, or sometimes on PBS in the States, are referred to as televised plays. It's literally where a performance is going on on a stage, in person, in a theatre, and they will stream that either to TV or to a cinema closer to your own home, which is great and makes everything more accessible. The term television plays refers to TV dramas and especially adaptations. It's important to dispel any notion that theatre is some kind of higher art than TV. Jason Jacobs writes that, quote, Developing the art of television drama was seen as a distinct project, separate from the relay and extraction of theatrical forms, and found in the third drama format, the adaptations. Richard Butt expands on this, saying that, quote, Adaptations became the primary vehicle for the creation of a distinct form of television narrative that combined the liveness and intimacy of the theatre with film's mobility of camera and ability to cut between scenes. Now is a good time to take a break. When we come back, I'll be talking about some specific examples of television plays.
welcome back. Hopefully it's become a little more clear why I focus so heavily on the BBC during the timeline. As I said, I am British. This is what I know. I'm sure there's lots of wonderful TV adaptations in the US. I'm just not familiar with them, so please don't be offended. Also, I don't think anyone would disagree with my saying that the BBC is probably the company most readily associated with TV adaptations of classic novels. More often than not, adaptations also take Victorian texts as their source material. And there are two reasons for this. The first is that the novel was a relatively new format in the 19th century, and it experienced something of a golden age during the Victorian era. So, simply put, there's more material to choose from. The second, and probably more important reason, is the Victorian tradition of the serialised novel. I know that Courtney went over these in an earlier episode, so I won't rehash it at length. You can listen to her, she did a great explanation. But the serialised novel meant that writers like Dickens were conscious that their work would be released in parts, and they wrote these parts to have their own beginning, middle and end within the larger book. They also tend to leave parts on cliffhangers, and that makes them especially suitable for TV adaptation. So what I want to do in this second part of the episode is to run through some of my personal favourite TV adaptations, and some that I think are most noteworthy. George Eliot is a really interesting example of a writer whose work has been adapted for TV, because only three of her novels were actually published in parts. Romola, that's kind of an outcrop with her novels, it was the only one that was serialised, it was serialised weekly in the Cornhill, which is the periodical that Thackeray edited. And then her last two novels, Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda, were published in a very unique form. It's actually a form that she, her husband, George Henry Lewis, and her publisher, John Blackwood, had invented. So those last two books were divided into eight parts, and then each part was issued monthly. And they've also both been adapted by the BBC. So the BBC made a version of Middlemarch in 1994 and one of Deronda in 2002. And they've actually, they haven't kept either novel in the eight-part structure that Elliot used. They have six episodes for Middlemarch and four for Deronda. And the fact that Middlemarch gets more episodes makes complete commercial sense. Obviously it's got better name recognition and it's more likely to attract larger audiences. It's also a pattern that you'll see going forward. The BBC does tend to commission television plays of either four or six episodes. So the four episode structure for Daniel Deronda actually works really well for it. Obviously there were eight parts in the original book, so with this format we can just have two parts in each episode. It's quite different in other ways though. So Andrew Davies, the writer of the screenplay, changed the setting a little bit. In the book it's set in 1866. Davies puts the action back to 1876, which is the year it was released. It doesn't have massive effects on the narrative, it's a subtle difference, which is interesting. And then there's the issue of interpretation that comes with adaptation. I know a lot of people are wary of watching adaptations because they don't know what a screenwriter will have done with one of their favourites. So I'll mention, it feels relevant to mention that Daniel Deronda is in fact my favourite book. And Davies has a significantly different interpretation of the characters and plot from mine. So the plot revolves primarily around two young people called Gwendolyn and Daniel. Gwendolyn is a wonderful, spirited, hubristic girl. Gets in over her head, is a polite way of putting it. And Daniel is a very polite, 
is a word I would use to describe him. Very earnest young man. And basically, I interpret their relationship as a very intense friendship. Not necessarily so one-sided, but Davies has it as a very romantic relationship. A relationship that maybe isn't fulfilled from one of the characters' perspectives. But, generally, his interpretation of the series is a lot more optimistic than it had been in my head. So I don't know what that says about me. This leads well into my saying that the reason I really enjoy this series, it's based on my favourite book and is based on someone who has a very different interpretation of that book to me, is because ultimately they're separate projects and they have separate audiences, they have separate contact, they're relatives, they're sisters but not twins. A phrase that I've always heard said about eyebrows and I think it works for adaptations and source material as well. So they're in the same family but they're not clones of each other, which I think makes it more fun. So yeah, because the context is different, the content changes quite significantly as well. So one thing that Davies does that I completely agree with is he leaves out some of the more Zionist aspects of the novel, which, to put it mildly, have not aged well at all. On the BBC website that I've linked to the show notes for Daniel Deronda, they've got this really brilliant quote from Hugh Dancy, who plays Daniel. And he says that, quote, there's a huge body of classics out there and nobody's read them all, so if you haven't read it, it's a nice way in. And I could not agree with that more. Like I said, Daniel Deronda is my favourite book, but I can definitely see why it might be intimidating or off-putting for a lot of people, and this is a beautiful way to dip your toe into the pool that is Elliot. The Middle of March adaptation, I haven't seen every single episode, we watched part of one at the George Eliot conference a couple of years ago, which is my main experience of that, but it's definitely one that I'm going to be seeking out to watch more of. Another BBC adaptation that I adore and that has changed things subtly from the novel is the 2004 adaptation of Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South. This one is actually available on iPlayer, so if you're in the UK and you have a TV licence, I can't recommend it enough. Do go and watch it. I have linked it in the show notes. So in the TV adaptation, there's a scene that features the Great Exhibition of 1851, which doesn't feature in the novel, but it's a really wonderful way of giving viewers who aren't maybe completely familiar with the period some insight to the importance of invention in industry and just broadening that picture. People have also suggested it's something that Gaskell herself might have wanted to include if her editor Dickens hadn't been so hands-on and strict with deadlines. <laughs> and the writer of the screenplay, Sandy Welsh, also changed the ending. So she does make it much more dramatic and the essence of the ending is the same, but she just has it happen in a much more dramatic way. It's a brilliant ending, but it's definitely tailored to a modern audience and Gaskell's is a lot more appropriate for a Victorian audience, and that's the beauty of adaptations. You can make it fit whatever context you're making it in. I realise that I've now been talking for a long time, so I'll quickly mention some of the adaptations that are thoroughly worth watching before wrapping this all up. Another BBC one. We have the 2016 BBC adaptation of Tolstoy's War and Peace, and the novel obviously is pretty much synonymous with being incredibly long so it definitely makes sense to adapt it into a six-part series instead of a film. There is a film of it that came out in the 50s and Audrey Hepburn is in it playing Natasha, which is a great film. I think probably a handful of people that have sat through all of it, 
and it's a lot more accessible to be broken up into six hour long parts instead of one. The film is very long for a film and it's still shorter. So you get a full view, but you don't have to sustain your attention for three hours in, as in the film. And honestly, I'm aware the novel has a reputation for being dull, probably related to being seen as very long. I don't see it as that. Long Russian novels are my jam, so I'm strange in that respect, I'm aware. But the series does a really great job of dispelling the idea that War and Peace is dull. For one thing, it effectively does away with the historiography elements, and if anyone listening to this is thinking about reading War and Peace, skip the historiography, I will sum it up for you. Russia is great, and its image has been tarnished by revisionist historians. Again, this is available on iPlayer. I believe it's going to be up on iPlayer until the end of 2018. If you have access to iPlayer and you have an hour spare over six weeks or six days or six hours, if that's how you, if you're someone who likes to marathon them, I highly recommend watching that. So we'll talk about one more BBC adaptation before I talk about some other companies, and that is. The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins that aired earlier this year. And I think this is... This really shows how well sensation novels are suited to TV adaptations. Their structure really easily lends itself to the rhythm of a TV show. You have all of that drama. You have the cliffhangers. It works really well. So to move on to different broadcasters, ITV produced an adaptation of Anthony Trollope's Dr. Thorne in 2016. I believe I've mentioned it on the introduction to our Trollope season. So Dr. Thorne is the third book in Anthony Trollope's series of Chronicles of Barsetshire. And the screenplay for the ITV Dr. Thorne is written by Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey. There was some criticism when it came out that it's so different from Downton Abbey. Obviously, Downton Abbey is A, set about 40 years after, at least 40 years after Dr. Thorne. B, it's an original drama, it's not an adaptation. So it, they are very different creatures. That being said, it is still Julian Follows. So if you enjoy Downton Abbey and you're aware of the differences, you probably will enjoy it. It's quite unusual that there's only three episodes of this one, but the structure does work. Also, I feel like I should mention that Alison Brie is in it, and I will watch most things that she's in. So one last recommendation is for, this is actually a neo-Victorian series and not an adaptation in the strictest sense of the word, and that's Penny Dreadful, which is a, a series produced in partnership between Showtime in the US and Sky in the UK. And they feature characters from Victorian fiction like Dorian Gray and Frankenstein in a kind of speculative neo-Victorian story. So it's part detective fiction, part gothic fiction. It's such an incredibly unique program. I could do an entire episode just on that, but I don't have time. So there's been a ton of interesting academic work generated around this show and what I'm going to do is link to some of my favourite articles in the show notes.
there are some really interesting things out there about Victorian positivism, lesbians in Penny Dreadful. Some really interesting reading, and I'll leave you to pick and choose between them. They are mostly only available to people within academic institutions. I just couldn't find many open access ones, I'm afraid. And I'll just finish by giving an honourable mention to all of the many, many Austen adaptations. I won't go on record saying which Pride and Prejudice I prefer. I think they're both good in their own ways, and I don't want to annoy any romanticists or experts in the Regency period. So I'll leave you with those recommendations for TV shows to watch and articles to read. Thank you for listening, and Courtney will be back with you next week. So make sure you listen to that episode. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. George J. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.